if you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, or swipe your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. This is, this is Jesus' most popular parable, arguably. Some people have called this the paragon of all parables. It's Jesus' longest parable, and, and, and probably his, his most well-known, this and the Good Samaritan. Luke's the only one that mentions this parable. But, but for, for a moment this morning, I, I think the Spirit's putting this on my heart, that, that maybe today's focus on this passage is, is this whole idea that the Father has this unconditional, true uh, forgiveness about him that enables him to parent like he did to these two wayward sons. I just got that. And, and so, so I'm, I'm going to roll with that. But a little bit before that, let's just paint the background here of what's going on in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel. So imagine this. Verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to him, him is Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So just for a moment, imagine with me in your mind's eye of what's going on here. Jesus is sitting at a table with two groups of people, tax collectors and sinners. Who, who were these people? Well, tax collectors and sinners were the marginalized, were the outcasts of society. They were the rejects. They were the people that the other group, see the other group is these, what do they call them? Pharisees and scribes. And why are they grumbling? So you have at the table in the most intimate setting in first century Palestine culture, if you accepted people, if you loved them, if you accepted them how they were, then, then you ate dinner with them. It, it's intimacy. This is Jesus' community group. And so the other group looks at Jesus' guests at his table, and, and, he, and they go, why are you eating with those guys? It's, it's sort of like a couple years ago, remember, when people got all into the, the elections? It would be like a, one political party sitting down with Jesus and the other political party saying, oh, why are you eating with those guys? They vote like this. It would be the same thing. That same level of emotion, that same level of, I can't believe you would accept those kind of people. And Jesus is like, I got, I got a story for everybody here. It's going to hit both crowds. So that's the context here. Jesus is sitting with the people who are rejects. Just a little bit more here. Uh, tax collectors were, were basically traitors to, to Israel. And so the, a tax collector would be someone who said, I'll work for Caesar. I'll steal money for people so we can build up this army and build up what we need to build up here. And so when people saw tax collectors, they actually went the other way because that person was a, was a traitor. And how dare you, how dare you work for Caesar and steal our money? So, so they were known as just, just low life, just scum of the earth. Like, why, how could you do that to us? You're a traitor. And so sinners was a technical term for people in the ancient world. Some of these people might have been born with uh, some sort of uh, birth defect or some sort of uh, disability. Remember, in, remember in, in, in the Gospels where a man was born blind and the religious leader, leaders, what was their one question? Well, who sinned? This man or his parents? And Jesus blows that out of the water and says, actually, it's neither. And he gives them a lesson. But they were, they were marked as sinners. So that's Jesus' company. And Jesus doesn't care their background. Have you ever heard the term? Jesus doesn't clean his fish before. He, catches, he, he cleans them after. So come as you are. 
So Jesus is sitting there. Now, now the parable that, that we're going to focus on today has been known as the parable of the prodigal son. And in your Bibles, it might say the parable of the prodigal son. Some people have also named it the parable of the prodigal sons because there's another son in the story. I would say that this passage is more about the forgiving father than the prodigal sons. But before Jesus talks about the prodigal son or sons or this father, he tells two parables. So Luke 15 is really three stories with one point. Now I'm going to back up for a little, uh, a little bit more and talk about parables. When Jesus spoke in parables, he spoke in parables for a reason. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Often when he spoke to the, to the masses, he spoke in these parables. Now the Greek word for parable is para and then balo. So para means alongside, like a parade is people marching alongside each other. That's para, alongside. And then balo means like, a, like I think of a baller, right? Like a basketball player, a baller. Balo is to throw. So literally, para, bale is alongside and then to throw some truth alongside a, a metaphor or an illustration or an analogy, specifically in first century Palestine. So Jesus was, he, he was so aware of the context. He knew about uh, birds. He knew about farming. He knew agriculture. He knew servants. He knew, he knew the culture. He was very relevant. And so he would take a spiritual truth and throw it alongside an illustration that the masses would get. But by the way, Jesus, uh, chapter Mark, or Matthew chapter 13, verse 11 he spoke and he often hid in truth he hid truths about the kingdom in the parable so that those who who would have ears to hear they could hear and then those who didn't have ears to hear it would be hidden and they'd be confused but a parable is a spiritual truth about the kingdom of god so whenever jesus is speaking in parables he's giving a lesson that imparts truth about the kingdom more than anything else in Jesus' ministry, Jesus cares about this, the kingdom of God. More than anything else. And, and I'll prove it to you. In Luke chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. I'll just, I'll just say it to you. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is preaching. It's his first sermon. It's an amazing sermon. He sits down and he says, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And then he sits down and, and he basically says, by the way, what Isaiah is talking about is about me. And they, they, were just, they said, well, this is uh, the death sentence. We have to kill this guy because he called himself God. And his ministry started thriving. And then at the end of uh, four, he's going through towns. And they said, hey, come heal our people too. He gained a lot of popularity. And Jesus in, in Luke chapter 4 says, that's not why I came. I came to preach the good news about the kingdom. And, and I feel like saying this as well. Like, like the kingdom of God is up here. And, and church culture is down here. So I, I have to unpack that because it just sounds weird, doesn't it? Like, like church culture has taught us that we come into a building and we sit down at a certain time and we receive a sermon. And oftentimes getting people to church, well, a lot of kids are getting yelled at, at least in my house. Anybody? Am I the only one? And so we were, we're inadvertently teaching our kids, it's like, you better get here because we've got to get to church, and you better be quiet and sit down in the seat. And so now a kid is confused, at least my kids were confused, about like, wait a minute, we're, we're talking about God, we're singing about Jesus, and we get in here, we sit down, but they're not experiencing the kingdom of God in their, in their dad. And so for, for the kingdom to be first in my house and in my heart, I care more about 
role modeling what peace and love and joy and everything the kingdom is about, Romans 14, to my children in the midst of wherever we need to go so that they see my good works and then praise the Father in heaven. That's kingdom living. That's kingdom living. But the, what the culture teaches us, you better behave, everybody. And then we sit in here and we go, let incense, or, you know, and, and, it's, and the kids are like, That's, this is confusing. I saw that in my kids. I, I said, oh my gosh, I'm confusing my, my son. So made some adjustments, and I said, it's about the kingdom now. Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So that to me means... I only see my kids through the kingdom. That means I only see my wife through the kingdom. That means I only see my job through the kingdom. That means I only see everybody else through the kingdom. Knowing that my, my struggle is not against flesh and blood, people, circumstances, situations, people, drama, long lines at Walmart, right? DMV. Those aren't my struggle. Ephesians 6, 12 says to me that I wrestle against principalities and powers against rulers, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So nobody is my struggle because I know where my real struggle is and I know I'm living for kingdom purpose first. So I just felt like saying that, like it's about the kingdom. And Jesus is about the kingdom. That's why he's speaking in parables. That's the point of this message is to point people's eyes to secrets about the kingdom. Now, let's go through the first two parables. The first two parables, the first one is the parable of the lost sheep. Luke chapter 15, verse 3. And so Jesus told them this parable. Remember? A bunch of religious, arrogant people right here looking at Jesus with a bunch of marginalized, outcasts, rejects. And he says, watch this. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. That's the first parable, number one of three. And so you'll see a, a theme real quick here. All the parables in Luke chapter 15 is about something that belongs to God that was lost, and then there's rejoicing in heaven when that thing is found. So you have here first a lost sheep that's lost in the world, and the shepherd gets reckless. I mean, he's just... If he had a bunch of advisors, they say, uh, okay, one out of a hundred, and you're going to risk the 99 to go after this one, that's reckless. But that's the shepherd. The shepherd is reckless. doesn't make sense, right? But the reckless love of God results in the rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Okay, shifting gears now to the second parable. Luke 15, 8. Or what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So there, there's a numbers thing here now. It's the, the value of the object is increasing. You have one in 100, you have one in 10, and then what's coming is one in two. 
Everything belongs to this owner. And then when it's lost, the owner seeks and tries to find it. And when he finds it, there's rejoicing. Okay? That's, that's, the, that's the whole theme of, of, of Luke 15. Now watch this. Now we'll get into our parable. 15.11. And I can picture Jesus saying, hey, you ready for this? You want one more? And everybody's going, yeah, tell another one. Because the sinners and the tax will love this. They love this because they know that they're being compared to someone who's lost in the world. And so the other group, the Pharisees, were saying, oh, this is getting good. Because all these sinners, this sermon's for them. You ever do that? Come on, let's get real here. Like, you ever hear a good sermon and you're like, man, you need to hear this. Or my... My neighbor needs to hear this sermon. Like, nope, nope, that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. They're, they're saying, yeah, Jesus, keep going. This is getting real good because this is totally about them. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Okay, we just have to stop right here. I mean, this you have to understand in first century, uh, first century Palestine, in ancient history, uh, this meant death. Now watch this. You can't turn to Deuteronomy 21.17. This is incredible. Deuteronomy 21.17. Okay, this is what Deuteronomy 21.17 says. Oh wait, I need to back up here. For... Okay, a rebellious son. If a man has a stubborn... This is verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. Are there any kids in here? Listen to this. This is crazy. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son. He's stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. 21. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your minds and all Israel shall hear and fear. So I read this to my son. I have a seven-year-old son. He's like, Daddy, do they still do that? And I said, like, no, Jesus came and we don't, do, we don't do that anymore. And he's like, oh, this is a seven-year-old. He goes, that's kind of harsh. I go, yeah. So that's this culture. I, I read this meme. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sh- show it to you here. The, the meme online, it says, you're, it shows a lady going like this. She goes, it goes you're, you're not truly a parent until you swatted blindly into the backseat of a car hoping to connect with a kid. <laughs> you ever do that? Like we purposely got a smaller SUV. We used to have a van, but we got an SUV so the kids were like within reach. Like, oh, like and, and for, for something so, so minor, right? Like, like spilling milk or like, what was it this morning? Like my kids got their hands greasy and they're touching things in the car. And I'm like, God. Oh. I think if you're a parent, you understand that parental hyperbole. Like, oh, I'm going to kill you. Or we understand that, right? That's nothing compared to this. Because for, in the ancient world, for this son to say this to his father is saying, yeah, um, I want my share of the inheritance, which all the scholars say that means, dad, I hope you're dead to me. Dad, you're dead to me. So give me what's mine. And so in the ancient world, the, the older son would get two-thirds of the property. He would get a double portion, according to Deuteronomy 21. And the younger son, that means he got one-third. And this guy was rich. His father was rich. He was well. He had servants. He threw a party at the end. Spoiler alert, he kills a fattened calf, which is like only for huge parties. could feed about 200 people. So he, he, was, he was loaded. 
So he said, give me a third of that, and you're dead to me, and I'm out of here. The father would have been well within the law to call the elders and have this son killed. But this is the reckless love of God. That's the title of this sermon, actually. The reckless love of God is, okay, you want to, okay, then I'll do it. It, This doesn't make any sense, does it? Like, someone asked me the other day, well, I have a a wayward teenager. What do I, and and so I happened to be reading this passage while this person asked me this. Probably the wrong timing, right? And I said something crazy. I said, well, let him. That sounds crazy, right? Like, you probably wouldn't hire me as a, counselor or anything if I said just let him disrespect you but that's God the father he's reckless like this son is so disrespectful give me my share and and look at this look at this and he divided his property between them did you ever notice that the father didn't try to control his son you ever notice that in this this passage you know why because the kingdom of God is not about controlling other people The kingdom of God is about giving people freedom to do whatever they want because God's in control. C.S. Lewis starts the day like this. Two questions. One, and I read this in a Richard J. Foster uh, devotional that C.S. Lewis starts off with, who's in control? And the second question is, to whom will I listen to today? And the the latter answers the first. Because God's in control, and so who am I going to listen to today? The one who's in control. And so if my day starts off every day, well, I'm not in control then I don't control anybody in my life or what they think of me or what they say about me or what they do to me. I don't control any of that. In fact, control is an illusion, isn't it? It's like something that we think we can grasp, but then it eludes our our control, and then we choose to be angry. But the kingdom of God is not about controlling others. And this might be the hardest thing for a parent to hear. And doesn't true love mean you give someone the freedom to fail? Like, come on, spouses, how about this? Wouldn't it be truly loving for you to just not control your spouse anymore? Like, to to, to truly love someone means you give them the freedom of choice. That's what this father does. And so, 13, it doesn't turn out well. Verse 13 says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. There's that word reckless. It comes from the Greek word asotos, which means extravagantly wasteful. So the son is prodigal. Uh, Tim Keller, he's he's a pastor in New York, he, he wrote a book called The Prodigal God. And for years, I was like, what is that prodigal God? Doesn't prodigal mean like a, like a, a buffoon or someone reckless? And uh, so the point of that book is the son's reckless, but the father is even more reckless with his love. Like the son's extravagantly wasteful with his money, but the father is even more extravagantly wasteful with his love. Like he, give, he gives the love out where most of us, well, I won't speak for you, I'll just confess my own sins. I would say, dude, that's too much love. I mean, this kid spit in your face, this kid, I would cut it off. And I've, I've said that to me, he's like, I've had enough. Not this father. He never says, I've had enough. He never says, you're getting on my nerves. He never says, I've had it. He just goes with it. But the son, he wastes his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country, to a citizen of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. 
Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, there's two views here that, that, I, that I read about. That the first view says that he, he experienced uh, true repentance. That he said, you know, I'm repenting from my sin. I'm getting up and I'm going back to the Father. The other view says that he's still selfish. And the only thing, the only reason why he went back was because he was hungry. So he's like, oh, I want to put some food in this belly. So I'm going back to my father's house so I can get some food in my belly. For me, it doesn't really matter which, which one is true. Because even if he's not repentant and he goes back, um, the Father's still reckless in his love. If he's truly repentant and he goes back, the father's so reckless and he doesn't say, where have you been? Can you believe what you've done to me and your mom? And you brought shame upon the family. He doesn't do any of that. So, he's got this prepared speech and he's suffering through identity crisis. Anybody ever gotten involved in some sort of sin here where you just felt unworthy? I think, I think, we, I think this is unanimous. Sin often makes us feel like we're unworthy. So now he's suffering through identity crisis. But let me, let me here's a here's big secret about this passage. The son is a son. I don't know why the majority of teachers, and I could be wrong here, but a lot of people teach that this passage says that this son is not a son. In other words, they say it like this. Like this is a non-believer. This represents a non-believer that he's repenting and coming to God, but I don't, I don't get that from the passage. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not studied enough on this passage, but it looks like the son is part of the family, like a permanent member of the family. So someone could be a permanent member of the family. Someone can be a child of God and not act like it. Is that what you're saying, Ryan? I, I think so. I think someone could be in a position where they don't act like that they're in that position. You know what I mean? Like someone can be um, like, like Barang family, right? Like uh, we're... we're my, my parents are immigrants from the Philippines and uh, super hardworking. So like a dominant theme throughout all the men in the Brank family is that they're hardworking. And so that's, that's sort of been their identity. But I could be in a family that's known for being hardworking. Like I could have the name Barang but be totally lazy, which is foreign to my family coming here with nothing. Um, someone could be in a position of, let's just say, the president but not act like what the president should act like. Right? Someone can be a doctor but not act like one. Someone can be a child but not act like they're a child. And so that's this child right here. He is a son of the father, but he doesn't feel worthy to be one. And so he's got this prepared speech. And verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, even with his identity crisis, right? And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion that's the word for, uh, it's felt it in his gut. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Well, there's some truth in that. And I mean, nobody's worthy to be a child of God. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. So nobody deserves it. Nobody's earning it or deserving it. It's, it's we are children of God because he chose us. Like, I'm totally into the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I, I, I totally believe that he chose us. 
and I, I used to believe that, that I chose God, but then I had this picture of me going before God and saying, hey, God, aren't you glad I chose you? And he, he revealed, like, well, let me tell you a secret. I chose you. Like, you were dead on the ground, and I resuscitated you. You had nothing to do with it. I saved you. And then I, I said in this dream, I said, oh, okay, thank you then. I thought I chose you all these years. He's like, no, that's okay. Come on in. Your house is third one on the left right there. Follow the golden road. Okay. I, I read something, um, an, an article about this that makes this running scene so interesting. Can I read it to you? So in the ancient world, uh, men, patriarchs, were, not, were known to never run. I mean, the Greeks were all about running. The Olympics were, running, were about running. The Isthmian Games, a lot of running, right? But, but Jewish men in the first century never ran. You know why? Well, because they're wearing like a man dress. And uh, in order to run, they would have to lift up their, 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 their dress and they would show their legs. And in this culture, it's totally inappropriate. It's shameful. Another thing, okay, watch this. There was a ceremony called the Kazaza ceremony. Ever, anybody ever heard of this ceremony before? The Kazaza ceremony was this. Um, okay. The village would have, I, I got this article from a guy named Matt Williams at Biola University. He said, the village would have followed the running father and would have witnessed what took place at the edge of the, the village. After this emotional reuniting, this, there, there is this Kazaza ceremony. Uh, they would break a large pot in front of him, right? If, if a man lost his inheritance among the Gentiles and returned home, the community would get together, break a large pot in front, of, in front of him, and yell, you are now cut off from your people, and the community would totally reject him. That's the kazaza. So the whole community, imagine this, because this, this is a communal place. So they'd be watching, like, oh, here he is. Oh, yeah, this is going to be good. Hey, get, get the pot. And people would have you, sticks and stones, right? Deuteronomy 21, we're going to kill this guy. We're going to beat him down. And so they had this pot ready. And I can imagine this father is just, he's brokenhearted. He feels it in his gut. He feels compassion. And he's watching first. And he's like, over my dead body, I'm getting to him first. And so that's the scene. And so he sees his son a long way off. He knows, his, he knows the silhouette of his son. He knows the way he walks because this is his father. He, he rocked him as a baby. And he's waiting for him. And then he sees him, first one. And he's like, try and catch me. And he runs, takes on all the shame from the culture. Everybody's watching. And he gets on first. And I can imagine him embracing him and then, and then blocking everybody and, and saying, you're not, doing, you're not kazazaing my son. You're not, you're not getting to him. And the whole crowd would have backed off because this guy's respectful and he's, he's honored in the culture. And they would say, well, I guess, I guess this, so much for this party, we're going to kill this guy or we're going to break the pot in front of him. For the father to take on all that shame was so that the son wouldn't have to experience any shame. Um, anybody suffering from shame and guilt here? Well, let the father come and take that for you. He did it. That's why the father takes on all this shame so that the son wouldn't have to experience it. The first thing I think of when I think of this is that, is that God has created us in his image. In the Imago Dei, he created all human beings. And from the beginning, we were meant to reflect him. And all these things happen in life that would pull our attention from that. And the father's saying, that's not your identity. What, what people want to do to you, what people want to say about you, 
your identity is in me. I took on all of that so you wouldn't have to experience it. Galatians 5, it's for freedom that you've, Christ has set us free to walk in it. We shouldn't be feeling any shame, any guilt. So when we do, I just confess that stuff and I expose it before the community group. I expose it to my wife. We actually have no secrets because shame and guilt have no place in our lives. So zero secrets in our marriage. You can ask us. It's the only way to live. Letting the Father take all our shame and guilt. Okay, so... The son's giving his speech, right? In verse 21, the father, this is what he does to his apology speech. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the robe, the best robe, which means it's his robe, and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That's grace. You know what God does with our apology speeches? Our sin? He just smothers them in kisses. Like, ah, oh, I just, oh, I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I did this. And God's like, come here, let me, let me, let me love on you. Now, this father exemplifies freedom. But, but here's the point of the whole celebration here is that, notice this, verse 24, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, dead, it, it can't mean he's, 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 physically died because he didn't resurrect from the dead although that, that would be that's, that's been known to happen before in, in the scriptures now the first thing I think of when I see this that he was dead and is alive is James 2.26 now I'll just, I'll just say that for you uh, faith without works is dead you've heard this passage that's, that, that's the whole faith so I have, a, I have a completely different take on that passage I don't think dead means non-existent I think dead means non-functioning that's just me and I know it's a minority, but I think it works here too. Dead doesn't mean non-existent. It means it's not producing anything that faith should be producing. For instance, if my car was dead, right? If the battery was dead, does it mean I don't have a car or does it mean the car's not going anywhere? Well, it means it's not going anywhere. In, in James, uh, a faith without works is dead. It means they have, they have faith, but it's not doing anything. It's not saving them from anything. It's not producing anything. Nobody can look at their life and see anything productive. This son, he was a son, but he wasn't acting like a son, so he wasn't experiencing the benefits of being a son. But he was dead, and then now he's alive. He's alive. So he came back, and that's why there's rejoicing. Because he was non-producing, he was not reflecting the Father, he was not acting like a son, he was missing out on the party, but now he's back and let's throw a party. That's how reckless the Father is. Let me wrap up with the older son, because this is important too. It's important enough for Jesus to tell this story. Now the older son was in the field, and he came near, and he drew to the house, and he heard music and dancing. Okay, what kind of party does this have to be for you to hear dancing? Seriously, have you ever like went to a party and you heard the dancing first? No, you hear the music, but you wouldn't hear the dancing unless they were doing some hardcore type line dancing or, or Gangnam style or something. Like, how do you, I don't know, were they breakdance fighting? We don't know, but this was a raging, raging party. And, and what, what in the world is the sun doing out in the field when there's a party going on at the house? You know why? Because this son loves ministry more than being in the presence of the Father. I mean, ministry is one of the worst idols ever. We know what an idol is. It's something good that's become ultimate. So this son likes doing work for the father instead of being in the father's presence. It's like Mary and Martha. Like one, Mary's like, I'm, I love being at Jesus' feet. And Martha's like, get off your butt and help me do something. 
Help me set up the sound. Help me, you know. And Mary's like, I just don't want to be in God's presence. So that's what the son was doing. He was busy. He was busy for God instead of being in, in God's presence. So sad. And he said to him, your brother has come. Well, he came and he called one of the servants. And then the servant said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. Like, what kind of person gets angry for no reason? Well, it's a person that's entitled. Like a person that doesn't spend time with the father, the whole, their whole world is full of triggers. And so they could pick anything to get mad at. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't like the way that person looked at me. Now I'm angry. I don't, a celebration? I don't like it. Jesus, you're going to give the money to the poor? Oh, this perfume? Like all these people in the scriptures who didn't have a relationship with the Father, who didn't spend time in the presence of the Father, they got mad at all these little things. And so, at least in my own life, when, I, when I'm getting mad at everything, man, I, I have to step back and say, I want, oh my gosh, I haven't spent time with the Father. I have not been in His presence. That's why everything is, quote-unquote, making me mad. But he, he actually gives us, this, this is disrespectful as well. Verse 29, he says, Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, see, even this guy, he's accusing. This son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead, and is alive. He was lost and now is found. Here again, at the end of the story, we see that the reckless love of God responds in disrespect. He responds with love. God is so reckless. And so here's, here's the most freeing thing, okay? God is reckless in his love. God lives in me. And God wants to dish out that love through me. Do we believe that? Like, do we believe like the risen God, like the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 8, 11, lives in me and dwells in me and has made his home in me? Do we believe that? Then we should have no problem allowing God to love others through us. If you're a parent in here, I wonder if God could unconditionally love our children through us. I wonder if our love could be so reckless that we could dish it out in the midst of disrespect and kids are yelling and when older kids are saying, I don't, thanks for nothing. Could we respond in love? I think we can because the Father lives in us. And so we can have reckless love because the Father is reckless and He's empowered us. I'm going to call up the, the, the worship team um, at this time. And uh, we'll, we'll close out like this, uh, the Lord's table. And um, I just felt like today, you know, th this message of, of the Father's reckless love and His unconditional forgiveness um, was something that all that believers would benefit from. Because this is a messed up world, right? It's a messed up world with messed up situations. And... You know, we've been part of, uh, I think this is the uh, fifth 
fifth Acts 29 church we've, we've been involved with. Uh, we've gotten introduced to the, to the network um, years ago. And when we, when we came here, uh, that's how we got plugged in. And we realized there's a sister church here. And, we, like, and we, we see the movement of God working in the Hampton Roads area. And so let me just get spiritual here for a second. I think that's a threat to the, to the enemy. I think Risen Church is a threat to the enemy. I think, I think gospel-centered churches are a threat. They're so pleasing to God, but they're a threat to the enemy. So this place is going to be under attack because you're a threat. And God wants us to focus our eyes on him and say, it's all about the kingdom. We seek this first.